Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Mee, and joined this week by the one and only Mr. Brendan Flaherty. How's it going, Brendan? Good, Jerry. How you doing? Pretty good. Uh, so we got a fun uh, episode topic today. You know, it's not too often that we can... Uh, you know, get some great real world uh, examples of some macroeconomic theory that we talk about in class. But uh, as many of our listeners, I'm sure, are more uh, are very aware of, you know, there's certain uh, banking crisis uh, going on right now. And we wanted to take this time to kind of talk about it, you know, what caused it and relate it back to, uh, you know, some of the things that we study in class for the CFP exam. Sounds good. I don't know. Yeah. Hope it's a fun topic, right? It's uh, <laughs> panic, actually. A lot of, lot of, lot of, you know, real fear in the system that we haven't seen in in, in quite some time. Uh, even more so than, you know, the onset of COVID, where I think everyone, you know, almost had this like sense of of concession or or hopeless hopelessness at the beginning of COVID. Um, but with this, there was a there was a fear like I haven't felt um, uh, since the financial crisis of of two thousand eight two thousand nine. Yeah, definitely some strong deja vu vibes for uh, 2008. Um, you know, people felt like, uh, you know, are we seeing another once in a lifetime, you know, Black Swan event uh, happen again, just, you know, uh, uh, a couple short decades later. Uh, but, you know, it, it at this point, it seems like a lot of it has started to kind of peter out. Things are stabilizing, but I do think it is still very worthwhile kind of discussing what happened and why it came about, you know, just like how after 2008, you know, the big short movie came out and everyone was fascinated with, uh, you know, how that financial crisis came about. Uh, it'll be interesting to dig into this one and, and see kind of where the points of failure were. Sure. So did you want to kind of give a breakdown, Brendan, of, you know, what, what kind of kicked all of this off? Well, I mean, uh, ultimately, um, as as you have with any transition with monetary policy, when especially when that monetary policy change shifts to tightening, where rates are being increased to try to slow the economy down, um, the fear in the markets is that the Fed uh, does something where they continue to push until they break the system or they break something within the system, uh, and then they they, they back off. Um, and so this seems to be at this point um maybe the break that uh people have been looking for where the the increased in 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 interest rates and and really almost the historic trajectory of the increase of those rates led to some some financial institutions um being shuttered um and, and really the, the the most notable uh, of them uh is is Silicon Valley Bank mm-hmm. uh and, and so Silicon Valley Bank, at, at the time of its failure, uh, it was the second largest uh, institution to fail in the history of the economy. Um, and at the time was, I think, the 16th largest bank in the United States. So mm-hmm. while it was considered you know, more of a regional bank, it was, it was relatively a, a fairly significant regional yeah, I mean, it's a regional bank, but that region just happens to be one of the richest parts of the entire country. So, yeah, <laughs> and, and, quite and so, a lot of assets. Yeah, and that that's you know there there are some some idiosyncratic risks that are are uh, uh, unique to Silicon Valley Bank, uh, which which I think you know once time kind of crept in here and and once um, cooler heads were able to prevail, 
uh, people were able to identify some of those uh, idiosyncrasies that, that made the the Silicon Valley Bank, you know, as you said, the the, the fear of contagion kind of dissipated once these things became evident. Because mm-hmm. uh, uh, the speed the speed of which that bank failed, uh, I I would have never thought that it could have happened as quickly as it did. Yeah, definitely. And to kind of, you know, lay out a timeline for our listeners of, you know, how how these things fell, you know, the dominoes started to fall is, you know, the Fed raised interest rates as they've been raising for quite some time now. Uh, And as anyone knows, uh, who studies the bond market, when interest rates go up on new issue bonds, existing bonds fall in price, because, you know, why would I want an old bond that pays a lower coupon when I can buy a shiny new bond that pays a higher coupon? So as a result, existing bonds fall in price. And some of the largest holders of those existing bonds are various banks around the country. So when these new bonds come out, all of these banks have all of these bonds on their balance sheets that have lost a great amount of value as far as their market value goes. And as long as they hold those bonds, that's fine. You know, it's still going to mature at par value. They're still going to get their money back. Yes, it's going to be a lower yield, but you don't actually have to realize those losses until you sell those bonds. So as long as you don't sell those bonds, everything's still pretty okay. What Silicon Valley Bank ran into, though, is... Their uh, clientele were mostly venture capitalists, tech startups, uh, you know, a lot of these, you know, the the quote unquote tech bros who live in Silicon Valley. Uh, and when those individuals need funds for their business, you know, as, as we've seen, it's it's been kind of rough on the markets uh, the past couple months. They need to start withdrawing some money. Uh, you know, they they have to burn some of their cash. And so they go to the Silicon Valley Bank. They take withdrawals from their cash. And now all of a sudden it starts looking like Silicon Valley Bank doesn't have enough cash to realize all of those withdrawal requests. And uh, as a result of that, they're forced to turn to their bond holdings and sell off those bond holdings to raise the cash, which then now locks in that loss. And when investors start seeing that on the balance sheets and they start seeing it in the earnings calls, That's when people start to get really nervous that, hey, maybe Silicon Valley Bank isn't going to have enough money even after it sells uh, these bonds because they've taken such a loss on them that they're not going to be able to cover withdrawals. And that is when the panic starts to set in. When you start telling people, hey, you might not be able to get your money out. Yeah. So if if we take just even a step back. So one of the other issues that that Silicon Valley Bank runs into is is when when money gets deposited into a bank, there's a few different things that they can do with it. So they can hold it in cash on on reserve, um, which which some portion will have to be right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they'll they'll be planning that the bank does to anticipate, you know, what's what's our worst exposure in terms of a drawdown? Like how much would we expect to have to produce in a single day uh, under normal circumstances? And 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 so they'll, they'll always have that on hand. Uh, from there, they can they can take the excess, which is going to be a huge majority of those deposits, and either invest them on the bank's balance sheet using collateralized uh, 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 securities. So, you know, mostly it's going to be it's going to be fixed income and money market securities, or they can lend it out. 
Um, and so when, when they do make purchases of bonds, um, those, those bonds are typically very short dated, uh, in nature, right? So they're, they're, they're very high quality, very short dated in nature, um, to, to reduce the two main risks that we, that we contend with, with fixed income, which are duration risk, which is the, the risk of, of changes in bond prices due to changes in interest rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and also credit risk, right? So, so the risk that there's a default of, of the issuer of the bond and therefore you won't get your money back. So um, one of the issues that has emerged uh, is that the folks that were making the decisions on the investments for um, Silicon Valley Bank specifically uh, is they were buying more longer dated treasuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so as a result of that, the longer dated bonds are increasing their duration risk. Uh, and they were also buying what's called uh, agency bonds. So government sponsored enterprise or mortgage backed bonds that, that are also issued by federal agencies. Uh, also relatively, um, you know, from a, from a, a relatively speaking from, from a bank balance sheet standpoint, long dated bonds. And so as the rates were increasing, um, these bonds had to be marked to market. Um, and, and so all of a sudden, the value of their portfolio relative to their deposits created an issue. Their gearing ratios got thrown off uh, and, and it required that they had to raise capital. Um, and that was the first sign that there were issues. When, when all of a sudden they announced that they're going to do a capital raise, that started the ball rolling where all of a sudden people really started to worry about um, the stability uh, of a bank. And you know, again, some of those idiosyncratic risks that we were talking about earlier um, is the size of the depositor. So Jerry said that it, it was domiciled in Silicon Valley. There was a lot of venture capital uh, investment in, in the bank. Um, and so when people pulled money out of the bank, it was coming out in chunks. Yeah, you're not talking about, you know, little little grandma withdrawing $200 to buy groceries. You know, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars at a time. Yeah, or, or, you know, or millions, yeah. yeah tens and <laughs> tens and hundreds of millions. And, and so, you know, ultimately what happened was the speed that I mentioned before, the speed of this was there was there was roughly $42 billion removed from that bank from deposits in four hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it just created a death knell to the point where the FDIC had to step in. You know, so it, it began happening. I think the announcement of the capital raise happened on a Thursday afternoon. Uh, that moved from okay, they, they became evident they weren't going to be able to raise capital soon enough to we're going to sell the bank, and that was Friday morning. To around noontime on 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 that Friday, the FDIC announcing that they'd taken over operations. Right, so so the the, the bank run had had been completed. Uh, and it was it was stunning in in the speed of it, um, because uh, again, you just everyone's I think heard of bank runs. People have seen it's a wonderful life, and it, that's the good old days. In the Great Depression, we had people lined up around the block to get their money out of the banks. It took time. Well, well the, now, uh, we actually did see that. So SVB had a branch in uh, Wellesley, which is a couple towns over from me. And I was seeing pictures of people with the line out the door. Waiting that was to- after the FDIC took over. Right? <laughs> after so the FDIC was- took over, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> waiting be- to get their money out. Be- before that, people weren't waiting in line. They were just pulling their money out electronically. Yep. And so that's the big difference, right? So it's a big difference today versus, uh, you know, even, even just 30 years ago, electronic banking is the way that people bank. And, and so one of the 
you know, potential underbellies of that convenience is the speed at which these these runs can occur. Yeah. Um, so that's what was really so that that happened on that that happened on a Friday afternoon. And then we get the weekend to kind of stew on the fact, oh, there's a big crisis here. Right. And at that point, we weren't we didn't really know kind of all of the missteps that the folks at Silicon Valley Bank had taken. Um, and so there was a lot of discussion. Well, maybe this is a, a, a if, if this the 16th largest bank, a really good sized regional bank is having these issues. There's got to be other issues out there. And so we saw the huge numbers of regional banks begin to get questioned over the weekend and, and then open up on Monday morning, you know, down 50, 60 percent in the equity markets uh, as people were worried about, OK, who's next? Right. Because if Silicon Valley Bank was was this fragile, other banks will also be this fragile. And that kind of feeds into itself where people will look at their, you know, mid-sized regional bank and say, well, you know, this bank has always been good to me and I don't have any reason functionally to believe that there's an issue, but the size of it's making me worry. So I'm going to take my money out of here above and beyond the FDIC insurance of 250000 and I'm going to move it to a systemically important bank like Chase or J.P. Morgan or Bank of America, which exacerbates, right? Because that's that's capital coming out of those banks. And so that's why I think you saw... It's a snowball, uh, you know. <laughs> it's a snowball and it's it's pervasive. It, it just... It, it just it's something that once it begins, it's hard to contain. Um, and, and not just, you know, within a specific bank, within within the entirety of the financial system. Um, and, and so I think that's why you saw uh, very quickly on that Monday morning, uh, Joe Biden, uh, President Biden, come out and say, hey, we're going to back all the depositors, right? All of these deposits are safe to try to stem off the contagion risk of people looking at Silicon Valley Bank and then looking at their bank and saying, hey, that looks and smells the same. Uh, and so I'm going to take my money out of here above and beyond that that FDIC insurance to to, to just protect myself. Um, I mean, and, you know, listen, there's plenty of arguments to be made uh, as to whether or not that's the appropriate thing to do, because when people put in amounts above and beyond FDIC insurance, that's you're, you're taking a calculated yeah. risk. Right? Um, and it's a risk that typically isn't something that's concerning. But uh, you're running the risk that that those deposits above and beyond that 250 threshold um, are uninsured um, and they're therefore subject to loss. It kind of feels a bit like a feedback loop too, going all the way back to you know 2008 financial crisis. And like you said, you know the reason why people are looking at these regional banks and pulling their money out and putting it in the larger banks is because you know we've all heard the too big to fail. You know, I'm yeah, well, take... and, you know, again, that's another unintended consequence of this is it makes that that too big to fail. Even it exacerbates it. Yeah. It's like, well, right. if it's too big to fail, that's where I want to put my money because it's too big to fail. That's where I know it'll be protected. And and then those those percentages of the nation's deposits that are domiciled within those banks becomes even larger. Um, they're, yeah, I... or, you know, continuing to to, you know, stress that if, if there was something uh, functionally wrong with with the financial system. I, I was reading that the other day. I think in the last 50 years, the number of banks in the U.S. has shrunk by 75 percent. Yep. You know, we're just we're focusing all of our money into larger and larger institutions. And people are leaving these these small regional banks or community banks because they just don't feel safe in them, whether that's, you know, a, a, a realistic fear or not, or if it's just a, you know, a feedback loop that that, you know, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, you know, and the, the the smaller banks are important. They're very important to our economy. Um, they really are the kind of the grease that lets the the economy move. Um, and, and so, but you know, at its core, um, 
banking only works because we believe it does, right? And we're putting a lot of trust into financial institutions when we put our money into them, uh, that we're going to be able to walk up on any given day and pull out whatever amount of our money that we we, we intend to. Um, and so in order for society to really function well, we, we need to continue to have faith in those systems. Um, and, you know, I think it's it's also important to, to, to note here that, that while there's going to be a lot of parallels drawn to the financial crisis of 08 and 09, this is entirely different. Um, you know, the financial crisis was dealing with systemically important banks, right? So these are banks that, that if they failed, they, they would have brought uh, potentially the entire system to a halt, um, you know, a cascading systemic failure of our financial institutions. These regional banks as a group in aggregate are important, but any of them individually really aren't. Um, and, and so it's, it's a big distinction between the two. Um, and, and so when you looked at, you know, the the, the concerns, um, you know, in, in Europe, the, the same week, so so this really kind of snowballed uh, from from there. Because we had Deutsche Bank and we had we had uh, Credit Suisse that, that really had some significant issues. Those are um, uh, you know systemically important banks in Europe, and and so you worry about contagion and counterparty risk in the United States. But you know because of the financial crisis and the ability of those those large institutions to really t- tear off all of their bad assets and, and put them on the balance sheet of the government. Um, you know, the, the, the balance sheets of, of our financial institutions are a lot healthier now uh, than they were going into the financial crisis of 0809. So these regional banks, you know, they're, they're smaller, they're, they're more susceptible to these types of failures, they're less prone to be propped up or backstopped by the government um, above and beyond the insurance and, and Janet Yellen um, said as much. So, you know, there was a lot of question after Joe Biden said that he was going to backstop all the depositors in Silicon Valley Bank. Um, whether or not that meant that every deposit in the United States was backed up. Um, yeah, it's like, is the 250,000 FDIC limit a real thing anymore? Or is it just, uh, you know, something they put on there and they'll, we'll go in and, and, you know, ensure everything if it, if it causes, uh, you know, them to avoid a panic. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it was done. It's not unprecedented. So back in, in the, the heat of the, the, the financial crisis, the government did back all of money market and deposits, um, uh, in in every every account in the in the country, so trillions of dollars, and it was more of a you know of a, a, a symbolic uh, backing than anything. Um, but Janet Yellen, who's the the Treasury Secretary, came out and specifically said, you know, we're not really investigating, um, it, it, you know, increasing the, the the size of the FDIC insurance pool uh, or, or changing the the threshold for insurance. Um, and we're going to continue to just back uh, uh, banks that we deem as systemically important. And so that that kind of threw water on the fact that we've nationalized deposits. Um, and so, you know, again, I, I think it remains prudent and important that, that people are aware of what the FDIC limits are and uh, they're aware of, of how they stay underneath them. And, and um, um, you know, there's other things on top of FDIC insurance, like, you know, private insurance that banks and, and credit unions can hold to to exceed that $250,000 limit from the government. Um, and, and just, you know, you you want to be you want to be paying attention to who you're doing business with. Um, when we look once the tide went out, we really got to look at what was happening at Silicon Valley Bank. So not only were they taking uh, that duration risk uh, mm-hmm. with, with their balance sheet. They weren't hedging interest rates, despite the fact that it was clear that we were on a very significant trajectory higher from the Fed. 
They did not have a risk officer in place for nine months. Um, there was numbers, uh, a number of, of warnings from the Federal Reserve in San Francisco about you know them being somewhat uncomfortable with the the, the position that the uh, the bank was taking. Um, and so you know there we'll we'll watch here over the next you know year or two. Uh, as we really diagnose and do a post-mortem on where the failures from a regulatory and oversight uh, standpoint came from. Um, but, you know, the, thankfully, the, this this didn't really get worse than, it, than where it stood because, you know, very similar to what we saw in 08, 09, there was, there was a failure here uh, uh, all the way up to, to regulators. And, and, um, um, you know, so you hope that that, that it's a it's a, 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 a warning shot across the bow that says, OK, let's let's make sure we're shoring this stuff up, because, uh, again, I, I am sure that if Silicon Valley Bank was doing it, then there's other banks that are doing it, too. Yeah. Um, they just may not have that idiosyncratic risk of those those just massive deposits coming out at the same time. Yeah, I was reading, you know, they had various models in place to, uh, you know, predict downfalls and things like that. And. Apparently, if they got a result they didn't like, they would just change the assumptions of the model until they got a result that they did like. So, yeah. you know, re- right. reality is what we make of it. Yeah. And then that's not necessarily what you're looking for from the from the risk department of your uh, depository <laughs> institution. You know, we, we had some other failures, too. So Signature Bank and, and Silvergate uh, also failed. But they, the, those are th- those are different. Right. And and so the, and really what, what drove the. Um, you know what really drove the fear that was sensed in the market uh, was was the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Yep. Now I want to go back uh, to something you mentioned because uh, it's very important for the CFP curriculum, and that's the uh, the duration risk. You know, short term versus long term, and the difference in risk there. Kind of, uh, you know, the whip is how I've I've heard it described uh, many times. Could could you touch on that a bit? Yeah, so the analogy that I use with with understanding duration and, and sensitivity to changes in rates. So, the, the, and when we talk about duration risk, um, you know, for the for the context of this conversation, it's that we're long bonds, right? So we're we hold we're, we're owning bonds and we're not we're not selling bonds, um, and that we're 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 also having um, rates increase as opposed to decrease. Um, and so when rates increase, interest rates uh, and and prices of existing bonds exist on opposite ends of the seesaw, right? So as rates go higher, it forces the prices of existing bonds lower, as Jerry mentioned before. Uh, they can't move in the same direction at the same time. And and so um, while we uh, will concede and understand that that's, that's, that's a fact, uh, understanding how sensitive your portfolio is, is, is a function of, of the term duration. Um, in, in, in essence, you want to think of duration like a whip. Remember Indiana Jones with the whip. So when you snap the whip, the, the, the short side, the, the, the part that's closest to the handle doesn't really move that much, right? But then all of a sudden, the very far end of that whip uh, moves around a lot. Um, and so, so the further out on the yield curve you are, the, the longer the duration of your bond or bond portfolio is, the more sensitive it's going to be to changes in interest rates. So when we talk about how most banks deal with their balance sheets. We said that they use very short-term bonds uh, from very high uh, credit quality issues uh, issuers. Um, Silicon, um, yeah, so Silicon Valley Bank was dealing with high quality issuers, right? There was no credit risk really being taken. Um, where the mistake that they made was was they went further out. Um, so instead of months, we were talking years uh, of duration on on the, the bonds that they were purchasing. Um, and so as rates began to climb dramatically. Um, you know, the, their their 
having to mark to market those those bonds uh, at those lower prices created a lot of the problems that they they, they got themselves into. And, and you know, you're going to hear all kinds of other things where Twitter got involved and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, if if none of these other things were in place, the tweet wouldn't have mattered. None of the other stuff would matter, right? It's it's the core failure to manage the bond portfolio appropriately led to all of the other downstream effects that led to the government owning Silicon Valley Bank. Sounds like Silicon Valley Bank could have used a couple good CFPs in their boardroom to avoid yeah. these risks, <laughs> you know, yeah. tell them all about uh, duration risk and uh, how to manage the, those expectations. Well, awesome. Thank you very much, Brendan. This was a, a great conversation. I uh, hope our listeners learned a lot. Uh, it's not often, like I said, that we can do some direct application of classroom yeah, lessons and yeah, thankfully <laughs> classroom lessons to real world events, but this is one such case. So hopefully all our listeners, when you get a duration question on your exam, you'll think of Silicon Valley bank and get it right. Cause you, you saw how it played out in real life. So with that, we will see all of you next week and study on. Take care. Everybody.